Amen. Thank you, Brad. So good morning. We're going to do things just a little bit different this morning. Instead of having somebody read, uh, we're going to read as we go along in our sermon. We're continuing, if you've been here this summer with us, in a series. Uh, we've, we've received new members into the church every week, uh, and um, that is significant for us because as we've been in the book of Acts for a number of months before the summer hit, you see the Lord there adding daily to the number of the disciples. It's what we've prayed for, and the Lord has truly done that among us. We're grateful, but what it means is, is that there's a lot of new people in the church, and so we thought it good to take time this summer to talk about what kind of church we want to be, some of our strategic applications of the theological base of our church that shape our ministry and our unique setting and time, and we've called uh, this series Our Theological Vision. And so I hope, I hope it's been helpful to you, particularly if you may be new to our church, new to Christianity even, uh, to get a glimpse of what we want to be uh, true of us as a church. And so even if you're here and you're a non-Christian, though we're talking, we're having a family meeting is the way I've been putting it, it's good for you to be able to, to have um, ears on that family meeting so you know what we mean at least uh, when we say we're trying to follow Jesus and uh, live faithfully uh, and obediently to his commands. Now this morning we come to what... Uh, If you look in your worship folder uh, at the outline that I've given you there, I've called Integrative Ministry. So we want to be a church that is sure to be involved in integrative ministry. Now, to integrate something means, of course, to combine the different parts together to make a whole, and that's exactly what we mean. And so we come to a principle that is really important, I think, for all of Christian living, and I would put it to you this way. Uh, It's important for this morning as well. There are vertical gospel realities and horizontal gospel results, if you're a Christian. There are are vertical gospel truths that you must believe in as as a matter of faith for you. And then there are horizontal gospel implications uh, that God calls you to. So even if you think of the membership vows that that our our new friends just took, uh, do do you know that you're a sinner? Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior of sinners? These are gospel truths that, that they're affirming that they believe in. But then the third, fourth, and fifth vow, do you, we, do you promise to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Will you support the church? Do you submit to the leadership and, and discipline of the church? These are gospel implications that our faith causes us to also embrace as well. Now, they're not the same, these vertical gospel realities and these horizontal gospel results. They're not the same thing, but they're always, they're always together. They always go together. So maybe... A few scriptures to illustrate this before we get into the bulk of what I want to talk about this morning. You might be familiar with the verse in Galatians 5-6 that talks about all that matters inside of Christianity, Paul said, is faith energizing love. Faith energizing love. So faith being a person's embrace of the vertical realities of the gospel. You know what I mean by that, right? God's love for us in Christ the work of Jesus in coming from heaven to earth, dying on the cross for our sins, his resurrection and ascension, and the giving of the Holy Spirit and power to the church. These are all vertical gospel truths that Christians embrace. Faith. Faith being a person's embrace of the vertical realities of the gospel. But Paul says, faith is always energizing love. And love refers to a person's embrace of the horizontal results of the gospel. To the call to take up our cross and love others just as Jesus took up his cross to love us. Paul says they go together. Faith is the energy for love. Love is the evidence of faith. Faith and love, always the two. Never separate from one another. They're not the same, but they're never separate from one another. 
another scripture which we read, uh, which we'll read here pretty pretty soon. In James chapter two, James says, "Faith without works, you know it. Finish it. Faith without works is dead. It's no faith." In other words, if there are no gospel results, it's because there's no gospel reality. You can measure the authenticity of your faith by your energy level for love. You can measure the authenticity of your faith by your energy level for love as you can measure the authenticity of your love by the degree to which it's motivated and being compelled by faith. So if you're aware of the gospel reality that God loved you, not because you're so lovely, but you were a sinner, you were his enemy, and he loved you. See, if you're aware of that, if that has come home to your heart in a powerful way, then you will be a person who is able, supernaturally compelled and empowered by the Spirit to love not only the people that are lovable in your life, but to love the people who you might call your enemies. Other sinners, people just like you. See, Christians, Christians care for the poor and the oppressed. That's what we do. That's a gospel result, right? But why? Well, because when we were poor and needy, Jesus spent his wealth to care for us. So gospel reality, you see. Do you see, do you see the point I'm trying to make here? So now the temptation, what happens if, there's, if, there are gospel, if there are gospel realities and gospel results and the two always go together but they're not the same, but the temptation is for, for someone, for a person, for a theological movement, for a church, whatever the case might be, to emphasize either gospel realities or gospel results and, and then to exclude the other. So churches, denominations, ministries, movements, and so forth tend to form around a passion for one or the other. And so there are churches, ministries, and such who emphasize vertical gospel realities. Doctrine is very important to these people. Evangelism is very important, teaching people the truth. And so there's, you see there's education programs, Sunday school strong preaching and all these things. And these are the things the church really should be doing. And, of course, this is the evangelical church. This is Baptist churches. Our, our church, our denomination, ministries like Crew, Surge, Evangelism Explosion, and so forth. Then there are churches and ministries who, who emphasize the horizontal gospel um, results, social justice issues, caring for the poor, siding for the oppressed, they start homeless shelters and soup kitchens. The social issues of the day are what the church should be busy with, according to them. And, and, and here you're talking about mainline groups and ministries and so forth. And the problem is, is when you see this sort of thing happening, and, and, and by the way, unfortunately, it tends to fall along political lines as well. And, we get, and, and so if you're on this side, then you have to be about the agenda of this side, and you have to be against the agenda of this side, and, and so forth. And, and what happens is uh, where, there's, where there's an emphasis... And on either side, that emphasis quickly becomes a blind spot. It quickly becomes a, a deficiency. And so if you, if you do one, what happens is, is you begin to neglect the other. And so churches where doctrine is really important often struggle to motivate and organize themselves towards social change. Whereas churches that do a really good job of caring for the poor and the oppressed, um, they tend to lose their orthodoxy over time. This is what happens, and what's, what's interesting is it's not, true, it's not true of the Gospels. If you think of Jesus' ministry in Matthew 4, 23, listen just to this summary statement of Jesus' ministry. Here's what we read. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching and proclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, right? Gospel reality. 
and healing every disease and every affliction among the people, gospel results. And there's the balance. And that's what we're after this morning. And so here's what we're going to do. It's going to be a little bit different. We're going to look at two scenes. And so you didn't know. See, I snuck in basically two sermons inside of one sermon. Isn't that good? Can you believe I did that? Two texts. Two mini sermons on two texts. And here's what we're going to see. We're going to first look at a, a text, a scene from Jesus' ministry in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 9. And really, we're going to see that it teaches us what our real need is. What our real need is. The second thing we're going to do is we're going to look at a second scene from the ministry of the early Christians because our ministry should be patterned after the ministry of Jesus and after the ministry of the early church, which was ministering from an experience of revival. So the first scene teaches us in Jesus' life what our real need is. The second scene, which is a scene from the ministry of the early church, teaches us what our real mission is, and that's what I want us to focus on this morning together, okay? So if you turn with me, if you have a Bible, that'd be great. If not, it's printed for you there in your worship folder. Uh, And also, I think, Josh be on the screen behind me, is that right? So from Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse uh, 1, we're going to read to verse 8. This is a scene uh, from Jesus' ministry in the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read uh, together, okay? Getting into the boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Rise and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid. And they glorified God who had given such authority to men. This is God's word. Now let's look at this text for a minute, okay? Can we look together? What I want you to see, and the very first thing that I want to say about this scene, and considering this man lying on this bed, is that there's a backstory. There is a story behind all of our personal stories that helps explain our lives. In other words, there's a story that had already been going on that we just find ourselves in the middle of as we come to this scene where Jesus begins to talk and minister to this this crippled man. And here's how I would put this to you. Christians believe that the world in which we live was created. We don't believe that life is a random, you know, series of events. We don't believe it's the result of evolutionary processes entirely. We believe that it is the product of the will of a creator who made all things with a specific goal in mind and made all things to work according to a specific design. When he created the world, he created it good because he is good. It was exactly the way he wanted it to be. A paradise, a garden is the way the Bible puts it, full of rivers and fruit trees and animals where the first man and the first woman ran around naked but without shame. Can you imagine that? Naked and no shame. I got lots of clothes on this morning and I still have shame. Right? Naked and no shame. In other words, they experienced perfect emotional and psychological harmony, physical health and strength, no death, no disease, deep intimacy and oneness in their relationship with one another, not fighting and blame shifting and so forth, no hatred, no envy. Because they lived in perfect harmony with their creator, we were told there in that text that they walked and talked with God in the cool of the day. Now, Christians also believe that God created humanity for immortality, that we 
were made to go on living in a place like that, living like that in a place like that forever and ever with ever-increasing experience of delight in God and an ever-increasing desire to worship and serve Him and to love and serve one another. That's what we were made for. But in the stories in Genesis, we're told that our first parents were not content with the place they had been given in the creation. They sinned against God the way that we sin against Him all the time. Despite all that He had done for them, all that He had given to them, they wanted to, to do life without Him. They wanted to serve Him, not, not... Excuse me, they wanted to be served by Him, not to serve Him. And the, this desire was the echo of a more ancient, greater evil, an evil that came into the world and seduced them to evil. And the result was, if you pardon the Hobbit reference, that the Greenwood became the Mirkwood. What, what was once lush and beautiful was invaded and poisoned by this ancient evil that invaded their hearts. The world became dark and dangerous and foreboding, just like the Mirkwood in Tolkien's story, the tw- trees twisted and disease, the path in disrepair, too easy to get lost and once lost, unable to find your way back again. The world we live in, folks, is sick and dying, and we're dying with it. This is what Paul says in the Romans passage that we we use as our call to worship. Romans 5.12, listen to the verse again. Therefore, just as sin came into the world uh, through one man, death came through sin. So death spread to all men. So So uh, he gives us the categories there of sin and death. Sin came into the world through the transgression of Adam and Eve. And then what happened when sin came, it opened the door to death. And death began to charge right through. So sin sin has brought death. Uh, There's a line from a a book uh, a number of years ago that came out. I hesitated to even mention it. But it's a book called The Shack. It's so much wrong and probably heretical in the book itself. But this little line is right on. Uh, and, and the character's having a conversation with, um, with it's kind of hard, it's, I don't know how to explain it, but with a being that is really, is really God, really the Holy Spirit. Um, and they're, they're, just, they're, they're, they're mulling around this question, if God is good, if God is good, then why is there so much bad in the world? And here, here's the answer that the, the character that's playing the role of the Holy Spirit gives, and I, I think it's so right. Uh, she says, she says, <laughs> Sorry. Uh, it, you know, it's just interesting. Please don't... Yeah, never mind, we'll keep going. She says, you humans, listen to this. This is really is good. She says, you humans, so little in your own eyes. You're truly blind to your place in the creation. Having chosen the ravaged path of independence, you don't even comprehend that you are dragging the entire creation along with you. So very sad, she says, but it won't be this way forever. So see, sin has broken the world. We rebelled. We rebelled, the Bible says, seeking independence from God. And in that act of rebellion, we have dragged the physical universe, which was made to live under our dominion along with us. And that's why. That's why there's cancer. That's why there are poisonous plants and mosquitoes carrying Zika virus. That's why death ultimately spreads to all men, as Paul says, because the world is sick and dying. And we are dying with it. But I love the line at the very end of that thing that I just quoted where she says, but it won't be this way forever. See, the Genesis story and all the stories that make up the great story of the Bible after Genesis teach us that God is not content to leave things as they are, that he has sent his son into the world on a rescue mission to redeem his people and the entire creation from sin and death. Now, 
step into the story in Matthew chapter 9, and look what happens here. Jesus is confronted with this need, this man whose legs don't work. His friends, were told elsewhere in the Gospels, have gone through a great deal of trouble to get him to Jesus. They had had to haul him up on the roof of the building that they're meeting in and drop him down like right. So if you can imagine, we're in the middle of a meeting and all of a sudden, uh, you know, you hear saws start to go and the ceiling of the building and, and they drop the man right down in front of where Jesus was teaching. I, I would like to think that I would have acted that way, but I think I would instead of have been annoyed or scared to death, I've probably run and hid underneath my desk in my office, been annoyed at the interruption. But look at verse 3, Matthew says that Jesus is moved by their faith. And he immediately begins to move to help this man. But here's the thing. Here's the question. What do you expect him to do? What, what do you think this group of friends went through all of that? Why do you think they went through the, all the trouble in the first place? I mean, I think the answer, of course, is that he needed new legs. And so we expect Jesus to move right towards him and heal his legs, sending him away, wobbling like a newborn calf. But notice, notice his address, verse 2. He comes to this man who so obviously needs physical healing, and look what he says to him. He says, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, what is this? What a strange statement. It must, have, it must have surprised the crowds. It must have awed them because, of course, Jesus. the friends did not bring this man to Jesus because he was a sinner. They brought him to, brought him, to him because he was crippled. And yet, what I want you to see is Jesus was unwilling to deal with his damaged legs before he dealt with his damaged soul. He was not willing to deal with his damaged legs until he first dealt with his damaged soul. And what's the lesson? There's a lesson here. What is the lesson? The lesson is this man had a real need. This man had a real need. He had a deep need, but it wasn't what he thought. His real problem wasn't his crippled legs. It was his sin. And many times we come to Jesus because we want him to fix our lives, don't we? There's something we're unhappy about. Uh, we want him to, something we're afraid of, something we're anxious about, some kind of pain or inconvenience that we want his help with. We want him to save us from our circumstances. And when he doesn't, when he doesn't, we get angry. But should we be? See, I don't, think this text, I don't think this text allows us to live in anger when he doesn't change the circumstances we want him to because what is it we learn from the story? I think what we learn is that the first order of business is never our circumstances. Do you remember what the angel said in Matthew chapter 1? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people from what? From their sins. So our real problem is sin. We're alienated from our maker. Our real need is to be reconciled to him. And so what if Jesus would have healed this man's legs but not forgiven his sin? I mean, listen, what good are legs that work in hell? This man's biggest problem wasn't that he couldn't walk. It wasn't that he wasn't right with God. And so when I meet with people, I often ask them, you know, what's the big rock you're trying to move right now? In other words... What are you up against? What's the obstacle? What's the thing you're struggling with? And I'll tell you, nine times out of ten, people describe a circumstance that they wish God would change. It's only the most discernible people, spiritually discernible people that I talk to, that talk as if sin, either the sin they're coming up against in themselves or the sin they're coming up against in others, as if that's the real problem. Now, broaden this a little bit. Romans 5 says that the physical brokenness of our world is due to sin. Therefore, you cannot, and, and you know, this is a big part of what Brad believes in Heart Foreigner, you cannot deal with physical brokenness without dealing with its roots, root cause. You can't solve the problem of poverty and homelessness in Winter Haven or anywhere 
by making sure you have enough free meals and warm beds. You can't fix the school system ultimately with policy changes. Every problem is a sin problem. And Jesus goes on to heal this man physically, but not before he heals him spiritually. Because to undo death, which was caused by sin, you must first undo sin itself. The gospel then is the good news. Excuse me. The gospel then is good news only if it addresses both problems, sin and death. And indeed it does. Jesus can look at this man and say, as a matter of first business, your sins are forgiven because on the cross, he would die for his sins. And that's the problem with printing a chunk of material like we do, uh, just a section out of Matthew's gospel, because Matthew 8 and 9 is really a whole chunk of material with similar themes grouped together to make one point. And, And the way Matthew makes his point in his gospel is to quote from the Old Testament. And so in chapter 8, verse 17, if you have a Bible... We get an explanation for all of these marvelous things that Jesus is doing. And the explanation is this, that he healed all who were sick and so forth. Then Matthew 8, 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now this is from Isaiah 53, which famously portrays the crucifixion. So Matthew's drawing a connection between Jesus' crucifixion and his healing ministry. And here's why. On the cross, Jesus took upon himself our sin. On the cross, he bore our curse, the Bible says. He was counted guilty in our place. The punishment our sin deserved was death. And so he died to satisfy the justice of God. And the result, the Bible says, is that he has put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Do you believe that? Christian, do you believe that? He has put away your sin. He's hurled it into the depths of the sea. It is gone. It does not reside upon it. He's put away our sin. But here's my question. If he's put away sin... What then happens to death? You see? And so he next turns to this man and look what he says. He deals with his sin, and then down in verse 6 he says, Now rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And this is the language of resurrection. Rise. It's the language of resurrection because it's the picture of resurrection. And so Jesus not only died to solve the problem of our sin, he was raised in resurrection power to solve the problem of our physical brokenness too. Because he dealt with sin, he can deal with death. Because he dealt with the real problem, he can offer real solutions to the issues that we face in our life. And this is, this is the deeper magic that Aslan refers to in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when he's killed by the White Witch and then raised to life in the story there. One of the siblings, you'll remember Edmund, has committed a great treachery and thus was liable to death at the witch's hand, but Aslan offered himself instead, the innocent in the place of the guilty. And this was the undoing of the deep magic. It was the deeper magic. Here are Aslan's words, that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the stone table would crack and death itself would start to work backwards. Now what do you see when you read Matthew 8 and 9? As Jesus heals those with diseases and causes the lame to rise and walk. Do you know what we're witnessing here? We are witnessing death's undoing. That's an amen moment, by the way. I'm still training you guys. Okay, That's a big deal. Do you understand? If the root cause, if the root cause, you know, Aslan says the stone table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. If the root cause of death is sin, as Romans 5 says, and if sin is removed, what happens to death? Death begins to die. And so we sing the song, Crown him the Lord of life who triumphed o'er the grave. 
who rose victorious through the strife for those he came to save. His glories now we sing, who died and rose on high, who died, say it with me, eternal life to bring and lives that death may die. Those are powerful words. And that is our gospel. That is our gospel. Our sin has been put away and death has been dealt a mortal blow in Jesus' death and resurrection. And what are, the, what, are the, what are the implications for us? What are the implications for us? Well, for one, we, it, I think we learn here from this text, we, we, need to, we need to seek vertical solutions to horizontal problems. The problems, and therefore the solution is hardly ever circumstantial. The solution in most of our lives, whatever you're going through right now, I would just kind of, um, I would gently say to you, the solution is hardly ever circumstantial. The solution is not a new set of circumstances. The solution is most of the time a new me in whatever circumstances I find myself in. Well, gosh, how do I get a new me? Well, there's only one way for me to get a new me. I have to address the real problem. The real problem is my sin. So see, sin is the problem behind marriage problems. It's the problem behind parenting problems. It's the problem behind our lack, our, you know, most of our emotional problems. And so Christian or non-Christian, wherever you are, do you know your great need is to be reconciled to God because he made himself, he made you for himself. Let me say that again. Your great need, no matter who you are, no matter where you fall on the spectrum of faith this morning, your great need is to be reconciled to your maker because he made you for himself and you'll be restless until there's peace between the two of you. Well, what then are the implications for the church? And that's where the Acts 6 passage becomes so important. So let's turn there if you would, or you can look in your worship folder. What are the implications of this teaching then for us as a people in the church? And we see this, this story in Acts chapter 6 that bears out exactly what, what really is probably, I think, the huge implication for us as a church. So let's go back to the scriptures again. Sermon number 2 this morning. From Acts 6, beginning in verse 1, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But, they, but, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word, and what they said pleased the whole gathering. And so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and all these other men. And verse 6, they set the, the, these they set before the apostles. They prayed and laid their hands on them. The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests even became obedient to the faith. And again, this is God's word. Now, what do we see here? Let me set the stage here as well. The apostles have been boldly proclaiming the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. From heaven, the Holy Spirit has come upon the church in power in the beginning chapters of Acts, and the result is that they've been witnessing death's undoing in their midst. The apostles have been healing people, much like Jesus, and doing the sorts of things Jesus was doing there in Matthew's gospel. But here in Acts 6, they come to a crisis point in their ministry. The church has experienced enormous growth and success, and with that big success has come a big problem, and it was this. While the vertical realities of the gospel were being carefully taught and celebrated, the horizontal realities of the gospel began to be neglected. Specifically, there was one group of widows that, that well, excuse me, there was one group that was being given preferential treatment over another. There was one group of widows, the Hebrews, who were being cared for by the rest of the church, but there was another group, the Greek-speaking part of the group, that were being neglected. So widows in this time were dependent upon the community for help. 
and support. It was the social issue of the day, you might say. So Paul wrote to the church about how they should care for orphans and widows and, and Timothy and so forth and, and, uh, and others who were particularly vulnerable. So it's a big, important part of, of the, the implica- gospel implication of Christianity, you would say. Now, this group of Hellenist widows were being left out of the daily distribution of food and clothing and so forth, and we're not told why. There is an implication in the text that this was a cultural, it was a, a racial issue. There was, this is racial discrimination. But that's not, that's not really the issue I want to get at this morning. The issue is that this should never have happened. This should never have happened in the, in the church. It should never happen among God's people. Listen to the scripture. James 2, 15 and 17. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Faith like that, faith that's by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again, First John three seventeen. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart to him, how does God's love abide in him? In other words, an experience of God's love for you energizes you to love. An experience of God's generosity makes you a generous person towards others. If there is no love, if there's no generosity from from you towards others, then then it's there's not. If there's a love problem, it's not really a love problem. It's a faith problem. See, it's not really a love problem. It's a faith problem. A failure in the horizontal results of the gospel, meeting physical needs, serving others, is an indication of a failure to grasp the vertical realities of the gospel. And yet it happens. It happens all the time. It happened in this church in Acts, in the middle of a great revival. And if it could happen to them, it could happen to us as well. And so what I want you to see is just this as I finish. I want you to see first how the church leadership moved here in this text to ensure the vertical realities of the gospel were not neglected. Look at what they say, verse, four, verse 2 and then verse 4. They say, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. And then in verse 4, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So why was it not right that they should give up preaching? Well, what happens when you ignore the vertical realities of the gospel in order to, dissolve, to solve horizontal problems? You don't solve anything. Remember what we've said, you only fix horizontal problems with vertical solutions. There are no gospel results without consistent, energetic, faithful gospel proclamation. So this is the right move by these guys. I mean, there's a big temptation. This is this, there's a big temptation to just address social issues, what we call the social gospel, the church becoming so concerned with social reform that it, puts, that it's, that it stops put preaching about sin and the need for repentance and conversion, putting money and resources and energy into solving problems of poverty and unemployment in our city and neglecting the gospel message, becoming a a church where you love at the expense of truth. And the apostles came down very hard and said, no, 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 that can't happen. We're going to keep preaching the gospel. See that? Okay, but uh, is it okay then not to address the issues the Hellenists were raising? What about, what about Truth at the expense of love, is that okay? No, 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 not at all. Because look what happens here. What do they do? The church changes its structures. Think about that. The church, in the middle of its mission, changes its structures. It expands itself beyond the ministry of the apostles to ensure their faithfulness in energetically implementing horizontal gospel results. The apostles decide to equally emphasize the ministry of vertical gospel truth and horizontal gospel love, giving charge of each of those ministries to a different group within the church. The apostles would continue to be responsible for the ministry of the word. These apostolic helpers, some people say these first deacons, would be responsible for the ministry of deed. And look at the result in verse 7. Because of, it's, a brilliant, it's a brilliant strategy because look what happens. Because of this, the word of God continues to increase. 
and the number of disciples multiplied greatly. Now, here's what I want you to see. This was the way the early church ensured that they stayed focused on both the vertical realities of the gospel and the horizontal results of the gospel. And this is what we mean by integrative ministry. If you think about our leadership structure, it's not coincidence that it's very similar to what we see here in Acts 6. We have, we have elders and we have deacons. And the job of the elders, particularly teaching elders like me, Jonathan and Jeff and Brandon, our job is to labor in the ministry of the word and prayer. Uh, we have a special ministry of teaching and preaching. And we have to make a conscious decision to labor in that work. But it's the job of the deacons who've also been ordained from our church to care for the physical needs and lead the church in the ministries of mercy. We have these two offices because the church should be doing both, both ministries all the time with equal amounts of energy. So we, you know, if you think about our mission in our city, so we have to plant churches. We have to continue to do that, to fill our city with churches where the gospel of grace will proclaim with boldness. Amen? You with me? That's an important part of what we're called to do here. To fill, you know, we, you read in the, our city should not be a place where there's a drought, not of rain, but of the words of, of the gospel. We need to fill our city with pulpits and people that will be preaching the gospel in every corner of our city because it's the good news of the gospel that is the ultimate, you know, the ultimate solution to the problems we find ourselves in. But at the same time, at the same time, we need to realize that churches tend to be, tend to be much stronger at gospel reality and the gospel results, Presbyterians especially, we tend to love theology. If we're not careful, we can become a truth at the expense of love type church, and that's why we started Heart for Winter Haven. It's why we intentionally started that ministry, and I, it's an integral part, and I use that word on purpose, it's an integral part of the ministry of this church because a gospel movement is always both word and deed, and we, we don't want just a church. What do we want? What are we after? A movement. We want to change cities. We want a movement. And a movement is always both word and deed. There's a renewing apprehension of the vertical realities of the gospel that leads to a reinvigorated strategy for the horizontal results of the gospel. The gospel coming home to hearts, leading people to repentance and faith, conversions and growth and discipleship on a wide scale, and a practical problem solving towards the physical needs of our city. Not one or the other, both. A commitment to evangelism and social action, church planting, and mercy ministry, that's what we want to be. The kind of church that if you're a Christian, no matter what your theological, denominational background might be, there will be enough familiar about what you find here at this church that you'll feel at home, but enough different that you feel unsettled and challenged. Do you remember the, the church in Acts 2 devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching like good Presbyterians and holding dynamic worship services daily like a Pentecostal revival? and involved in confrontational evangelism as if they were Baptist and committed to a system of wealth redistribution much like the liberals promote today. That's integrative ministry. Combining the strengths of all the different parts of the church into one, that is a supernatural, integrated whole. That is what the church should be when it really is the church. Not just one part, but all of those things. But the kind of church that if you're not a Christian... No matter what your ideology, whether liberal or conservative, that you would feel like your values are affirmed, but also a little unsettled and threatened because the opposite side seems to be embraced as well. The church should be a place where staunch conservatives and staunch liberals are both unnerved. Until it is, it's not a church of the Spirit. That ultimately is what we want to be. Holy Spirit, you know, we pray, come and shape us to be such a church that as we come even to this table this morning... Oh, that you would increase our faith, and by increasing our faith, that you would increase our love.
That's our prayer, and so let's pray as we prepare to come to the table. Will you pray with me? So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the glorious news of your gospel, that truly, because you have dealt with the problem of our sins, that you offer us forgiveness, that we can be reconciled to the Father because of your work in dying for us upon the cross, uh, that as we read in, in Lewis's famous story, that the result is that the stone table has indeed cracked in two. We have died to the law, and death has begun to work backwards. Death is gasping for, it's in the death throes, it's in his last gasps. The world around us is, is perishing, it's wasting away, and we at the same time are being renewed. That's the reality. Death is on its way out. And we do give you thanks that by the power of your spirit, you can shape us to be a people who live in light of the realities of the new world that is on the way, even in the midst of this dying, broken world that we still are called to walk through. But that takes an enormous amount of courage and faith. And so we thank you for this opportunity to come to this table. Would you fill us with just that? Give us courage and faith as we rehearse the promises of the gospel together this morning. May you come and speak to our hearts. Come and minister to us. Come at the place of our very weakness and nourish us and strengthen us that we might be full of good works that glorify you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thanks for your patience this morning as we waited through all that stuff to do. What good news that God is moving in our church, that we have a lot of stuff we have to get through on a Sunday. So uh, thank, you. thank you again. Turn your hearts towards him in faith and receive the words of this benediction. If your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May he turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace. Thank you.